Hey, this is Randy Robinson, and I'm the pastor of Everyday Church. Thanks so much for joining us today. We hope this podcast encourages you, stretches your faith, and helps lead you into a growing relationship with Jesus. Let's do it. Today is the third and final week of a mini-series on expectations. And the first week, I encouraged us uh, to raise the level of our expectations. And we talked about how one of the ways that um, we can begin to expect God to come through in our current and in our future circumstances is to look back at what God has done in the past. Because how many of you know if he did it before, he can do it again? There's an old song that says he didn't bring us this far to leave us. He didn't teach us to swim to let us drown. And so week one, we talked about how God has come through for us so many times in the past that we don't have to worry about the future. Even in the midst of uncertainty, uh, all of the uncertainty that we've had as a church regarding this building and this property, we know God's moving and he wouldn't have brought us this far just to leave us on our own. And so whatever the next step is, we trust him fully. And we do it as a corporate body of believers, but we also do that as individuals. And so Uh, I've encouraged us to believe as a church that God is moving because of what he's done in the past. But I've encouraged you to also look over your life as an individual, as a family, at the times that God has come through. Because if he did it before, he will do it again. Last week, we talked about something called negative bias and unmet expectations. And what negative bias is, it's our tendency to focus on and dwell on the negative even when the positive far outweighs the negative. I gave you a funny example of my boots from uh, the Everyday Church hoedown. Oh, you're slipping. Remember? Oh, yeah, there we go. All right, thank you, thank you. I'll give you one more time. Remember last week we made a a proclamation from here on out when someone has the mic and they say Everyday Church, I won't say it because I want you to do it in a second. But if I say the word, your response is to be hee-haw. All right, you ready? Let's try it one more time. So I gave you just kind of a lighthearted example from my boots from the Everyday Church hoedown. All right, that's too much. I don't know. I think we should uh, veto that and not allow that to happen anymore. <laughs> Our guests are like, what is going on? Uh, all right, I digress. All right, we, we talked about how negative bias often works its way into our spiritual lives, where we often have so many reasons to believe that God is going to come through, but rather than trusting Him, we easily slip into anxiety and worry and unbelief. And then we spent most of the time last week, we really talked about, again, unmet expectations. I mean, every person in this room has experienced unmet expectations. Someone, somewhere, sometime has let you down. Often it wasn't intentional, but the hurt that it caused was real nonetheless. Some of us have unmet expectations from our sons and daughters. And if I could say to the parents, some of, our, some of us are putting, putting unrealistic expectations on our kids. But we need, to, we need to let our kids, first of all, let them be kids. And let them hear the voice of God and let God decide their path, not you decide their path. Although we're supposed to guide them. That's what we're supposed to do. That's why we're parents. I'm not saying just take the training wheels off and be like, no, do what you want. I'm not saying that either. All right. 
But sometimes we have unmet expectations from our sons and daughters as parents. Sometimes as kids, we have unmet expectations from mothers or fathers, unmet expectations from pastors, Christian leaders. And some of us are carrying hurt and all and feeling let down by God himself. Unmet expectations. And so what do we do with all of this hurt? How do we move beyond being abused as a child from a father or a mother? whether it was a violent abuse or verbal or even sexual. As a child, we should expect our parents parents or our guardians to love and protect us. And yet so many people have a story of unmet expectations where the hurt and they, they received hurt and abuse instead of love and acceptance. How do we move beyond spousal Abuse. How do we move beyond an extramarital affair when expectations of unconditional love and trust were not met? We talked last week that the answer is forgiveness. It's not always easy, but forgiveness is the path to wholeness. Forgiveness isn't for the other person. It's for you. Bishop T.D. Jakes is often quoted as saying, not forgiving someone who's wronged you is like drinking poison, expecting the other person to die. In other words, unforgiveness in our lives really only hurts us, not the other person. So if you missed last week, I'd encourage you to go back and listen on the podcast or catch it on YouTube. Just get caught up. I had some dialogue with multiple people this week regarding last week's message. And one of the things that we talked about was how there wasn't really a lot of resolve. Meaning at one point I presented some difficult questions, but didn't really offer any solutions other than, which is an important one, and we're going to talk about that today. is that Jesus is our healer, which was the big takeaway from last week. So let me give you, again, a heads up for the end game of this week. Jesus is still our healer. But Jesus didn't promise an easy road. He promised that he would be with us on the road. And so today I'm going to present some of those same questions that I gave us last week, and I'm going to try to give us some biblical framework to hold on to. For some in the room, this might feel elementary. Uh, For others, it might feel like a cop-out. But my hope is that it will give us all some encouragement. So here are the questions that I asked last week before we dove into unmet expectations. What do we do when our prayers go unanswered? What do we do when our prayers aren't answered in the way that we want them to or expect them to be? A lot of people have their own God let me down stories. And how do we reconcile all of that? What's the balance between we read in scripture that it promises healing, but someone very close to me died of cancer? Or I myself, I'm struggling with a chronic sickness or debilitating disease. Where's the balance between the Bible promises to protect us, but someone I know and love was injured or in a terrible accident or maybe you yourself were injured or wounded in some kind of freak accident and you don't understand how or why that God would allow that or maybe yourself maybe you find yourself asking well if God is so loving then why is there so much suffering in the world and if he's so loving and so caring how did this happen and that happen and we have all of these questions and they lead often to unmet expectations See, if we don't understand, if we don't have an understanding of why we believe what we believe, then when, then, then when trouble comes, our faith will be crushed underneath the weight of it. We all have a mental picture of what and who we believe God to be. 
There's a guy named George Buttrick. He's the former chaplain at Harvard University. And he recalls how students would come into his office and say, I don't believe in God. To which he would reply, well, sit down and tell me what kind of God you don't believe in. Because I probably don't believe in that God either. (laughs) Pastor and author James Emery White writes this. Most people who reject the idea of God don't reject the possibility of his existence. They reject what they think that they know about him. I mean, how do people who are outside of the Christian faith come to their assumptions and opinions? By, by watching you and me. By watching those of us who say, hey, I'm a Christian. Christian meaning like Christ or follower of Christ. I'm going to make a strong statement here. But when professing Christ followers act like a bunch of self-righteous, bigoted, racist, homophobic, angry, depressed, anxiety-filled people, we're allowing others to make false assumptions about who God is. Because when I show up and say, hey, like Paul said in Scripture, follow me as I follow Christ, and then my behavior exemplifies something completely opposite of his character. People who don't know Christ have no other option but to say, oh, well, if he's like Christ, that must be who God is. So we're bringing distortion to those outside of the faith who they think he is. It's been a while since I told you a good story about myself. Um, so just to give us all some <laughs> a break here. Uh, let me give you a real-time example of, of me acting not like Jesus. Uh, I've already referenced today, but most of you know Katie and I are coaching four- and five-year-olds in soccer. It's fairly chaotic at times. Um, sometimes practices are amazing, and sometimes they just look at me like, you're a complete idiot. And it's just like you're just, you know, whatever. It's all right. So a couple of games ago, one of our little girls, uh, she looked like she was about to cry in the game. And I'm very, you know, I'm, I'm loud and pretty obnoxious on the, on the field. Uh, but she's pretty shy. She's starting to come out of her shell, which is kind of cool. Um, and I always try to encourage her. You can do it. Be tough. Use strong kicks. Beat the boys. So I'm just like trying to pump her up, right? But I noticed in this one particular game, she got a little pouty lip. And I was like, are you okay? And she shook her head no. And I was like, is Coach Randy yelling too much? She was like, mm-hmm. And I was like, go see Coach Katie. I don't know what to do about this. All right, so this is kind of our life. So Monday night, this past week, this is how fresh this is. Monday night, we're at practice. And this team that's older than us, remember our kids are, are four and five. This, kid that's, this team that's older than us is on the field kind of next to us. And they keep kicking their soccer balls. I don't, know, I don't even know what drill they're doing, but they just keep just landing on our field. And, and it's hard enough to get my kids, the four-year-olds, to focus. I mean, anything that happens, right? Butterfly, if the, if the ground looks different. You know, the other day there was a little patch of dirt where people had been digging. And it's just you, they don't... It's all they want to do is keep digging in the dirt. You're like, ah, it doesn't matter. So it doesn't take much to distract them, let alone 20 soccer balls just raining down on our field. So they happen. It happens every practice, right? It's usually not a big deal. You roll it back to the people. And they're like, sorry, whatever. But on this particular day, it's having, it just felt like I wasn't connecting with the kids. They weren't connecting with me. And the more it fell, the more distracted they got. And they were disrupting every drill that we had until I just, their field's over there. I got the ball. And the parking lot's over there. And I just went, boom. And then I was like, what are you doing? 
keep your soccer balls off of our field. So I'm screaming at another coach. And as you know, every time I mess up, I'm wearing my everyday church shirt. <laughs> I'm on the soccer field wearing my everyday church, a place for everyday people yelling at other coaches because they can't keep the soccer balls off our field. Yeah. <laughs> What'd you say? Yeah, Sunday fun day. My bad. Come on. Buy your shirt another See, many people feel that God is angry or mean, and maybe it's because they've encountered one too many angry, mean soccer coaches in their life that said, hey, I'm a Christian, and then you act like a complete moron. I've used this quote before, but it's such a good uh, quote. It's very powerful. A.W. Tozer is, said this, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Because what and who we think God is, is it determines how we live our lives. So do you think of God as vengeful and angry? If that's how you picture God, then your life will mimic that, those thoughts. Do you think of God as a loving and caring father as described by Jesus in the New Testament? Because if you do, then your life will be lived out in a way that's completely different than the person who pictures God as angry. All right, so back to our questions. If God is supposed to be so good and loving, then why is there so much suffering in the world? Why has it gone on for so long? Why doesn't God step in and stop it? And this is really the most persistent question that people ask. Across every world religion, every philosophy, every worldview, why is there suffering and evil in the world? Maybe this feels a bit all over the place, and I'm just hang with me. I'm going to try to make, to make a point here. To a lot of people, it seems like maybe we just need a better God, or at least a better God than the one that the Bible portrays. But the truth is this is that the question of, question of suffering and evil is not a question that the Christian faith alone must answer. Because if we reject Christianity because of the existence of suffering and evil in the world, then we have to reject every philosophy, every worldview, every ideology, every religion. Because it doesn't matter if you're Buddhist, Muslim, Mormon, Scientologist, Hindu, or nothing at all, everyone must answer the question about why the world is so messed up. Pastor Andy, Andy Stanley says this, pain and suffering don't disprove the existence of, existence of God. It only disproves the existence of a God who doesn't allow pain and suffering. In other words, when a person expects their life to have no suffering or pain, and that expectation is unmet, and it will be unmet, then their faith in God is shaken. We can't recover from the trauma that we feel when we're in those moments when we're like, hey, God has let me down. I know I've been giving you a lot of quotes today. I'm going to give you one more. Famous author C.S. Lewis lost his wife to cancer. And shortly after, he wrote these words. Not that I am, I think, in much danger of ceasing to believe in God. The real danger is of coming to believe such dreadful things about him. The conclusion I dread is not, so there's not a God after all, but so this is what God is really like. In other words, he didn't fear that he would stop believing in God, that because of pain and suffering, because pain and suffering exists, there could be no God. His fear was coming to believe that God simply didn't care 
that God was vengeful, disconnected and removed from his very own creation, which is actually the opposite of who God is. Now, in order to understand where everything went wrong. From a biblical perspective, we we really have to go all the way back to the beginning. As in Genesis chapter one, verse one, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, we read the biblical account of creation for the next couple of chapters in Genesis. And I want to highlight just a couple of verses. But I want to encourage you to go and read these verses, the first three chapters in their entirety, and just kind of get a feel of what was happening and how all of this life got messed up, because it goes all the way back to that. Genesis 1, verse 26, it says, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image and our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. And so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. The word subdue there in the Hebrew means to force or keep under, to dominate, to make subservient. So God was giving Adam and Eve authority over every living thing. It continues, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over every living creature that moves on the ground. And then God said, I give you every seed bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. God has now given them control over every living thing, including plants and animals. It was like he gave them the keys to the car and said, look, it's it's yours. Take it. Do what you want to with it. Now, let's jump to Genesis 2, verse 15. The Lord, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to care for it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you do eat from it, for if you do, I'm sorry, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Now, I want to point out a couple of things here. Number one, spoiler alert, Adam and Eve messed things up. Uh, part of the punishment of that mess up was hard labor. But we notice in verse 15 that it says the Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And we talked about this a little bit in our Sabbath series. But a lot of people think that work was punishment for the sin that Adam and Eve committed. But this is not true. Work existed before the fall. When God gives us something... He expects us to work it and to take care of it. And that's why when he gives you a gift, it's important for you to use it. He expects you to cultivate it and do something with it. He expects us to nurture it. He expects us to subdue it, which is the biblical word we just read a minute ago. As a result, when we cultivate, we reap the benefits of those blessings. See, when God blesses us, we are supposed to be good stewards of that blessing. And if we take take care of it and we work on it and cultivate it, then we're free to eat the fruit of that work. All right, let's jump to Genesis chapter three. We're going to jump around here. And this is where things go. Go south. Genesis chapter three, verse one says, now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman. Did God really say that you must not eat from the tree, from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, you may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. 
But God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. And so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. So the next few verses, there's some dialogue between God and Adam about what had happened, which leads us to the punishment that they receive. This starts in verse 14. He says, so the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. And he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And to the woman, he said, I will make your pains and childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife. And ate fruit from the tree from which I commanded you, you must not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you. Look, this is why I don't listen to my wife. <laughs> Actually, I'd be lost without her. Mark Batterson says this, the voice of the Holy Spirit often sounds like your wife's. And I think, I think that's true. But he, God's rebuking Adam. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of the living. And the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. This was the first blood that was ever shed to cover sins. This was a prophetic moment depicting what Jesus would later do thousands of years later. When he died on the cross, as Johnny already talked about this morning, to cover and wash away our sin. Verse 22, and the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. And so the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. I know it's a lot of reading before sin. God placed Adam in the garden to work or to cultivate it belonged to Adam to do with whatever he wanted to do. After sin, there was painful toil, which literally means hard labor. It means hurt or pain or grief. See, when we do things God's way, we're able to cultivate and grow. But when we do things our way, everything becomes more difficult. And often not just for us, but sometimes and possibly even for generations to come. I mean, how many times have you seen a grandfather, a father, and a son who have all struggled with alcohol or drug addiction or some other vice? 
See, when we do things our way, we pass on selfishness and pride and destructive habits to the next generation. But the good news is this, that God made a way through Jesus to break the power of sin and addiction. And we can pass on generational blessing instead of generational curses. All right. This was more than just a mistake that Adam and Eve made. It was more than just getting kicked out of the garden. This was more than just having to work harder for their food to survive. When they bowed to this temptation, they were actually given the authority that they had been given by God. They were releasing it and giving it to Satan. Remember, God had said to them, I'm giving you everything. Fill the earth, subdue it, work it, cultivate it. Remember the analogy I said it was like he gave them the keys to the car. He said, here, take it for a spin. It's yours. Do whatever you want. But when Adam and Eve sinned, it was like they were given the keys away. Really more than the keys of a car, it was more like giving the keys of the kingdom. Amen. They no longer had authority or control. They were no longer subduing anything because they had taken the authority that God had given them and given it to, to Satan. Now, because of this, pain, suffering, Sickness, disease, pestilence, pandemics all became the norm because Satan was now driving the car. Has anybody ever done a flip house before? Anybody ever worked on a house and sold it afterwards? Maybe you spent hours and hours, maybe hundreds or even thousands of dollars getting your house perfect to sell. You paint it, you change the carpet, you put hardwood in, put tile in, whatever, right? You did whatever you wanted to do. And then you sell the house. You get it ready. You put all your love, all your TLC into it. And then you sell it. And then one day you drive by and it's painted a different color. Or maybe even you were invited in to see what they'd done to the place. And the hardwood that you had put down and loved, they tore up. And the pool you installed, they filled it in or whatever. The garden that you'd put in the back, they ripped out and put in the pool. And you're just like, what did you do to my house? But because you sold the house, you no longer have any authority or say in what they do to the house. And this is really kind of what happened in the book of Genesis. God creates this beautiful garden he places Adam and Eve in it. He says, this is yours. Cultivate it. Be fruitful and multiply. Everything in the garden, everything was created to multiply. You can have it. And they said, okay. But they gave it away. Adam and Eve sold their house. And the new owner had no regard for their desires. And he certainly has no regard for our desires either. Jesus said that the thief, just Satan, has come to do one thing, and that's steal, kill, and destroy. Scripture tells us that every good and perfect gift comes from God. Satan is the destroyer. He is responsible for all of the pain and the suffering in the world, all of it. Because before the fall, it didn't exist. Jesus said that he came to give us life 
and give it more abundantly. It's God's desire that we as Christ followers return back to a place of authority, that we again begin to subdue and dominate life, so to speak. God desired it so much that he sent his son to die on a cross once and for all. Remember I told you today's end game was still Jesus is our healer. Even though we can look at scripture and it tells us where pain and suffering originally came from. It doesn't really minimize the actuality of the pain that we often feel. It doesn't minimize the hurt that we experience when a loved one dies in a tragic accident or receives a terminal diagnosis of some kind. See, many of us have an expectation that these kinds of things will never happen to us. And if they do, then sometimes we blame God. But I want to tell you today that God is not a murderer. He's not some kind of sadistic killer waiting for an opportunity to bring the pain. He's not up there handing out sickness and disease like it's some kind of prize. It's not our cross to bear. Jesus already dealt with that. Jesus already took our sickness and our shame and our sin and our insecurities and our anxiety. And he nailed them to the cross on Calvary. Jesus said we're supposed to take up our cross and follow him. But it's not talking about taking up all of those kinds of things. Taking up our cross is about dying to our selfish desires. It's about deciding that I'm no longer going to do things my way, but I'm going to do them his way because his way is always better. So I love this song. Have your way. May it be my prayer. May it be the posture of my heart and my life. And when I'm on the soccer field, I'm not doing stupid things like kicking the ball where the kid can't get it. I want him to have his way in all of my life. Not just where I'm standing in this pulpit. Not just where I'm leading worship. When I'm leading my family. His way is always better. Understanding where sickness and disease and pain and suffering began is really only part of the equation. Sometimes knowing why doesn't, it, it doesn't even help. Sometimes it does. But the pain is still real. Listen, I can't and I won't pretend to understand what kind of pain that every person in this room has been through or the pain that you might be experiencing right now in this moment. I've had my own set of pains to deal with in my life, right? I know the pain of divorce. I understand the pain of children's visitation rights battles. I understand the pain of betrayal. I felt lots of pain, but I've also been someone who caused a lot of pain. But in spite of all that I've experienced personally, I've been spared from a lot of loss. I haven't been through the death of a spouse. I haven't walked through the death of a child. I haven't received that life-threatening diagnosis or been through a debilitating accident. I don't know what those things feel like firsthand, but I know someone who does, and his name is Jesus. Adrian, you can come and play. 
Just because we understand where pain and suffering originated. Just because we know that pain and suffering weren't God's original design. While it may be bring some clarity to some of our questions, again, that alone doesn't take the pain away. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 13 said this, God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. And so we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? In an ancient letter written to early Christians to what would now be northeastern Greece, from, from within the walls of a first century jail, a man named Paul wrote these words. Philippians chapter 1, verse 20. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ. To die is gain. James, the brother of Jesus, said this. Why, you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. See, early Christ followers had a different perspective on their lives than we do. There was a confidence that no matter what they faced, they would be okay. They would either make it to the other side of whatever hardship that they faced, or they would see Jesus again. If you are a Christ follower, you also have the same assurance. Jesus himself said that he would never leave us, that he would be with us to the end. We know where sickness and pain and suffering began. It doesn't always take away the pain. But we have someone who promises to be with us no matter what we face. We might face difficulty. But we never have to do it alone. So why is there so much suffering and evil? In simple terms, Adam and Eve gave away the keys. We truly do live in a fallen world. It's not a cop-out, it's reality. And this concept is actually foundational to our faith. And while that answers a little bit of the why, again, it certainly doesn't take away the pain that we often feel. And that's part of the reason why God the Father sent His only Son, Jesus. Jesus came to give us life, to restore all that was stolen. On behalf of Pastor Randy and the entire staff at Everyday Church, we'd like to thank you for joining us today. For more information on the church, please visit us at everydaychurch.xyz.